your Bible this weekend, and I hope that you do. If you will take it out and open it to Matthew chapter 25. And Matthew 25, do you know how to listen? That has been the question that Jesus has been asking to us throughout these uh, parables here in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew explains to us that Jesus spoke to his disciples and to these first audiences in parables so that those who were not genuinely listening would miss what he was saying. Uh, one of our campus pastors told me a story this week about when he was in college. You may have had something like this happen to you where he was given an exam and uh, the uh, professor said, you know, make sure you read all the way through to the end. Um, and so my friend looked at the exam and uh, saw the instructions there were to read all the way to the end before he did anything. But he, he said, I saw a couple questions right there on the front page that I knew the answers to and didn't want to take a chance of forgetting them. So I just jotted them down real quick. He said, and I started to work through the rest of the exam. He said, and I noticed about 90 seconds later, all these people were getting up and headed back to the, up to the thing, turning their exam in. And I was confused by it. So I flipped over to the back and sure enough, it said, um, you know, only put your name on this exam. If you make any other mark on this exam besides your name, then I'm going to grade it just like normal. But if you'll walk up and just hand it to me, then you will get a perfect score for the exam if you just turn it in with your name on it. And he said, there I was again with another lesson about how I didn't listen. By the way, all these stories I've been telling you about a campus pastor who doesn't listen, they're all about the same guy, the same campus pastor. I won't tell you his initials just for sake of privacy, but his name is John Muller, um, and he is the <laughs> campus pastor at our North Raleigh campus. I think his Fabio hair here keeps him from being able to, to listen clearly, but um, listening is a critical life skill that we have talked about, and that is what is happening in these parables. If you have ears to hear, and if you're paying attention, there's a lot of wisdom to gain, but if you're not listening with the ears of your heart, then the meaning of what Jesus is saying is going to go right over you. Speaking of listening, how many of you are on Team Yanni? Raise your hand. Uh, put your hand up, if you will, Team Yanni. How many of you are on Team Laurel? Put your hand up uh, out there. It is amazing, amazing that two people can hear two completely different things listening to the same recording, right? Uh, they say it has to do with the condition of your ears. Um, I have read that hearing Laurel is a sign of extreme intelligence and moral purity, um, which is how I, I choose to see it. But um, Jesus is going to say a serious thing um, about uh, a similar thing about the gospel itself, that what you hear when you hear these parables is based more on the condition of your spiritual ears than the content of what's in there, which is why he spoke in parables. He was speaking in a way that those with the right disposition of heart, those with the right motives for listening would understand what he was saying, and those with the wrong disposition of heart and those who weren't really listening would just be confused by what he said. Well, Matthew 25 contains three of these parables. We are going to press in mostly on the third one, which is the parable of the sheep and the goats. But all three of these parables are going to make a, a very similar point. And just to be clear, when I say goat, I'm not talking about LeBron or Jordan or Nicolas Cage or Celine Dion or anybody like that. All right, goat has a different meaning in this parable, and you'll want to pay attention as to what it is so not be confused, okay? Jesus tells these three parables right before the crucifixion. Jesus knows that he's about to die, after which he will ascend to heaven and his disciples will see him on earth no more. But through these three parables, he is encouraging them that the day is coming when he will return. This time he will not come as a baby in a manger. He will not come in a meek and lowly posture. He will not come washing the feet of people. He will come as the judge of all men. Now, the point of these three parables is that 
we, his disciples, ought to be prepared for that return. And each of these three is going to build on the one before it. So before we dive into the third, let me just summarize very quickly the first two. The first parable is about 10 maidens who are supposed to be part of a big marriage party. But the thing is, is that they don't know exactly when they're going to be picked up and taken to the marriage party. Uh, Since we're in a hand-raising mood this morning, how many of you set your alarm yesterday for 6 a.m. and got up and watched the royal wedding? Just go ahead and testify to that real loud and proud, okay? Uh, I may or may not have been in that uh, number uh, for whatever it's worth. Uh, You'll just have to figure that out. But um, uh, yesterday, uh, they uh, were all on time, like British people always are. Uh, They were all ready so that when the the Rolls Royce showed up to pick them up, they were ready to go. Well, in Jesus' story, five of these maidens are wise, and so they trimmed their lamps, which means they got oil for their lamps, and they packed their bags, and they were ready to go. The other five, Jesus says, were foolish, and they thought, you know, he's probably not going to come tonight. It's kind of rainy. It's cold. I'm tired. Um, I want to binge on Netflix. And so they just sat at home and didn't go out and get oil for their lamp. Too bad there was no such thing as Amazon Prime now because this whole terrible parable could have been avoided. They could have just put the order in and it would have showed up two hours later. However, that hadn't been been invented yet. So they sit at home with not being packed and ready and with oil in their lamp. And sure enough, that very night, the bridegroom comes and he takes with him the ones who are packed and ready and he leaves the ones who aren't. So the point of that parable is that Jesus wants us to be ready when he comes back and not to be sitting around idle. But the question you ask is, well, what does it look like to be ready? Does it mean that we kind of go out every day and look up at the clouds and say, maybe it's going to be today? What does it look like to live in a posture of readiness? So to answer that question, Jesus tells a second parable. This one is about a master who goes on a trip and he leaves various amounts of money with three different servants. To the first one, he leaves five talents. Now, don't hear talent and think good at basketball, good at piano, that kind of talent. Talent was a unit of money. Um, They say in our currency about $15,000. So to the first guy, he leaves $75,000. To the second guy, $30,000. And to the third guy, $15,000. And gives each of them the instructions that they are supposed to invest it in the market and to get a return for his his kingdom. Well, um, uh, the first two guys do that and they put risk it and put it in the market and they get a return. But the third was scared he would lose it. So he buries it in the ground and waits for his master to come back so that he can give him the $15,000 that he had been, been, in, been entrusted with. Well, when the master returns, he rewards the two that risked and invested their talents and multiplied them. But to the one who buried his talent out of fear, he called that servant lazy and wicked. So in other words, putting this together with the first parable, we see that what it means to be ready, be ready for the bride bridegroom's return is to be busy leveraging whatever God has given us for his kingdom. It is true. If you are a believer, God has given you a certain amount of time and talents and treasure for use in his kingdom. And what this parable shows you is that he is going to hold you responsible for how you invest them and leverage them and multiply them for his kingdom. But still, you might be asking after this second parable, what actually does that look like in action? What does it really look like to invest your talents for the kingdom? Well, that's why Jesus tells the third parable. In this parable, he gets down to kind of the nitty gritty, the essence of what it looks like to be a follower of his in this day and age. So let me just ask you a question to consider before we dive in, help you get calibrated as to what you think about this. How do you define the essence of being a Christian? If you're just going to say kind of what the, the, the core part of it is, what is that? What determines whether you are really a genuine Christian or not one? 
I've told you before that many Christians seem to think that it's mainly about believing the right things, you know, being able to pass the doctrinal exam with, with flying colors, or it means obeying the important moral laws, but is that really what it is? Francis Chan, a, a, an author, a, a speaker, um, wrote a book called Crazy Love in which he makes a statement. He said, just to read the Bible, to attend church and avoid big sins, is that really the passionate, wholehearted life of discipleship that Jesus was calling us to? Is that really what it means to be his follower, just to read the Bible and go to church and avoid the big sins? I've told you before that many Christians, um, the way that they look at uh, the Christian life is uh, kind of illustrated in uh, when I was in college, uh, the third year of college, we, um, friends of mine and I had a house off campus and one of my friends had a dog, a black Labrador retriever, lovely dog, but the dog had gotten run over um, on his back leg. And so his, his back left leg was broken and, or, and he, couldn't, he, just, he couldn't walk. And so he would just sort of mope around and he pretty much all day would just lay at our threshold uh, door of our house and just smell up, smell up the place. That was kind of his role um, as a dog. And um, you, you felt sorry for him, but I was stepping over uh, the dog one day going out to class. And I remember looking down at that dog and having this thought that based on how most people um, understand the Christian life, that dog Max would have made a fine Christian right? He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. He never cursed. We'd had him neutered, so that wasn't a problem anymore, right? He obeyed all the Ten Commandments. He obeyed all the laws, right? But is that really what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that you just avoid immorality and that you obey when you were told something? Is that what God was after when he called disciples of Jesus? Is that what it means to be a follower of his? Does he really want robots who just follow him and avoid big sins? So Jesus tells this third parable to try to illustrate for us what it would look like for you you to be actively leveraging the talents that God has given you for his kingdom. And that's Matthew 25. Let's begin in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. The thing to notice there is that Jesus is telling his disciples that when he comes again, he's not going to come like the baby in the manger. He's not going to come with this meek and lowly posture. He's going to be sitting on the throne of the universe. All power and authority is given to him, the power of heaven and hell itself. And he is going to separate people into categories of those that are headed to eternal bliss and those who are headed to eternal punishment. Verse 33, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to these on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom that is prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he explains, you see, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Well, the righteous, the sheep kind of look at Jesus and they say, what? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty and, and we gave you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in? When were you naked and we clothed you? I felt like I would remember that. When did we see you sick or in prison, Lord, and, and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for 
me. The first question we need to ask here is, who exactly is Jesus talking about when he says, the least of these, my brothers and sisters? Now, some very well-meaning, good-natured people, good and well-intended people, want to equate these people here, these least brothers and sisters of mine, with all poor everywhere. And certainly, God wants us to care for all the poor, which I will show you in a minute. But specifically here in this parable, he is talking about poor believers. When he says, these brothers and sisters of mine, that phrase, whenever Jesus uses the language of family in Matthew, he is always talking about his followers and not some general sense of the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. Furthermore, that term, least of these, is a common one in Matthew, and Jesus always uses that term whenever he uses it, and he does it quite often, he always refers to his disciples. So it is abundantly clear that he is talking here specifically about poor, suffering Christians. And before we move on, before we move on, I want you to take a minute just to let that sink in. First to you personally, even before you think about the obligations that come with it. When you do kindness, when someone does kindness to you as a believer, Jesus takes it as if it were done to him himself. When someone does unkindness to you as a believer, Jesus takes the offense as if it had been committed against him. That's why when the, uh, Saul, uh, the apostle, future apostle Paul, was on the road to Damascus, and, and Jesus appears to him and knocks him off of his horse, he says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my follower. He didn't say my follower. He said, why are you persecuting me? It is amazing that when somebody does something against another believer in Jesus, Jesus takes it personally. I, I think of it like this. You know who I hate? Well, I'm a pastor. I probably shouldn't hate people. You know who I have a hard time not hating? How, is that better? You know who I have a hard time not hating? I have a hard time not hating people who are mean to my kids. I, I feel like I'm generally a really patient person. My wife may, may disagree, but you know, whatever. But um, I feel like generally I'm pretty patient with people. But when somebody intentionally hurts one of my kids emotionally or um, certainly physically, I mean, I just feel like I just want to, I'm just going to lose it. On the other hand, if you really want to get on my good side, then just be nice to one of my kids. I got a pastor friend who talks about his 10-year-old son playing Little League Baseball when um, the, the jerk pitcher for the other team um, hit his son at the plate intentionally, you know, with the pitch. And he said that the umpire didn't do anything about it because it was really obvious that the umpire was pretty biased toward the other team and had, you know, it was obvious he had a lot of connections and interactions with people on that team. So he said he tried to say that my son, the reason he got hit was because he leaned over the plate. He goes, and I knew that wasn't true. He said, no, I just wanted to go ballistic on that umpire. But he said, here was the thing. I mean, all the parents in the stands and all this, and I'm a pastor and everybody knows that I'm a pastor and I don't want to create a scene, which by the way is the dilemma I feel everywhere in the triangle. Um, I'm like, I really feel like I'm justified in being rude here, but I know as soon as I do, someone's going to be like, I go to the church. So he said, I just stood there and I didn't know what to do because I wanted to defend my kid, but I also didn't want to make a scene. He said, I'm trying to decide what to do. And all of a sudden he said, this woman that I, 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 I knew that she went to our church, but I didn't really know her at all. So all of a sudden she jumps up, she grabs the fence, she starts to shake it, she starts screaming at the umpire with all the language that was appropriate for a moment like that one. He said, he said, I didn't know that woman at all, but right then and there I determined that I loved her. Because when you stand up for my kid, you stand up for me. 
Well, see, believer, just let this sink in for a minute. That's how Jesus feels about others when they do good to us. It's how he feels when we extend kindness to other believers. And it's how he takes it personal when someone is unkind to one of his children. Doing something for one of his children is like doing it literally for him. So verse 41, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You see, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't take me in. I was naked, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't, you didn't take care of me. Then they too will, will answer. They'll say, well, Lord, what, when did we see you hungry? I mean, what were you hungry for? Are you hungry now? Do you want the angels go out and get a hamburger and a Coke? I'll pay for it, Lord. When, when, when were you naked? When were you in prison? What were you in for? Why couldn't you just get out by walking through walls like we've seen you do sometimes? What are you talking about? And then he will say to them, he will respond to them just like he did those on the right. Depart from me, you were cursed into the eternal fire. Oh, excuse me, I already read that. Um, then he will answer them, I tell you, whatever you did not do it for um, one of these, the least of these, you did not do it for me. They will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Three very important questions that this parable answers for us. Question number one is, who's gonna go to heaven? Right, that's a pretty obvious question. Question number one, who will go to heaven? This parable is more than a little alarming to me because it shows us, listen to me, it shows us that not everybody who considers themselves a Christian is gonna go to heaven. The sheep and the goats in this parable all seem to recognize the Lordship of Jesus. Nobody here is like, whoa, who are you? Where's Buddha? I didn't even think there was a God. No, all the maidens in the first parable considered themselves friends of the bridegroom. All the servants in the parable of the talents considered themselves in the employ of the master. All the sheep and all the goats in this parable recognize the lordship of Jesus. This judgment, listen, does not separate Christians from the rest of the world. It separates genuine Christians from imposters. And make no mistake about it. We are not dealing here with simply loss of reward. We are talking about heaven and hell. Jesus ends the parable of the maidens, which we didn't read, but he ends the parable this way by saying the door was shut. Later, the rest of the maidens also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. He replied, truly, I tell you, I don't even know you. He ended the, serv the, the parable of the three servants this way to the wicked servant, you evil, lazy servant, throw this good for nothing servant into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he ends this parable of the, um, of the sheep and the goats with him saying to those on the left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't think it could get any clearer. We are talking about heaven and hell. And it means that there are a lot of people in church who think they are Christians, who think they are on their way to heaven that are tragically mistaken. By the way, if you wonder if Jesus really believed in hell, look no farther. How could it get any clearer than what he says here? You said, well, what, what, what's the difference between the sheep and the goats? What, what's the difference between heaven and hell? Well, evidently, it had little to do with what they believed or how much they went to church. It's assumed here that both the sheep and the goats believe the same things and they're really involved in church. Those things are not referenced here. The only difference between the sheep and the goats in this parable is what they did and did not do. Whether or not they were actively, tangibly engaged in the mission of God, whether they were generous toward the poor, particularly poor believers. Apart from that, Jesus said, apart from that, all other religious activity is useless. 
The whole Bible says that, by the way. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, God says to Israel, you fast all the time. By the way, when you fast, that means you're pretty committed. Right? I never run into somebody who's like, yeah, I don't go to church that much anymore, and I don't ever read my Bible, but I fast like once a week. No, if you're going to fast, it means you're all the way in. It's the really committed. God says to Israel in Isaiah 56, you fast all the time. And you do all this other religious stuff, but none of it matters to me because you turn a deaf ear to the poor. And I don't care how religiously active you are, if you turn a deaf ear to the poor, you don't know me at all. James, Jesus' half-brother, would say it this way, James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. In other words, religion that's true, religion that's real, religion that's not fake, religion that's not just a sham. That kind of religion is shown by, watch, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unstained from the world. In other words, there are two signs that your faith is genuine and that it is real. And those signs are, number one, you love those people that God loves. And number two, you're busy rooting out sin. You're taking sin seriously and rooting it out of your life. Not just big sins, but anything in your heart that displeases God. Now, I know that you hear this, and then you're like, well, wait a minute, J.D., doesn't the Bible teach that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone? And isn't saying that, that our salvation is determined by how we respond to those poor brothers and sisters? Isn't that a contradiction with the, the teaching that salvation is by faith alone? No, not at all. What it's showing you, listen to this, what it's showing you is that real faith, the kind of faith that saves you, is more than just intellectual assent and church attendance. Saving faith transforms you from the inside out, and you demonstrate that transformation by engaging in the mission of God. Again, James, who was Jesus' half-brother, would say it this way, faith without works is dead. What he's saying, the analogy he uses after that is it's like a body that has no breath. It looks like a body. It looks like it's alive. But the life is not in it, and that's faith. It looks like it's real, but if it doesn't have the life breath of generosity and love, particularly to the poor, then it is a dead body with no life or breath in it. You see, and that's where it helps to reflect, listen, on the fact that the ones Jesus specifically identifies with are Christians, particularly Christians who are suffering because of their commitment to the message. Because that's the reason they're in prison, and that's the reason they're hungry and naked is because they're being persecuted for Jesus. And what he is saying in this parable is, listen, if you believe this message at all, how are you not going to be moved to action by the stories of those who are suffering for their commitment to the spread of this message? Let me take you one other place in Matthew real quick where Jesus says the same thing, because I think it will help you get your mind around what Jesus is saying here. You say there in Matthew 25, I'm going to go to Matthew 10 real quick. Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples on their first mission as his representatives, and they're supposed to go and preach what he preached and heal like he healed. And he explains to them that they're going to be dependent on the hospitality of the villagers wherever they minister. And here's what he says, Matthew 10, 42, watch this. Who anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. In the ancient world, taking somebody into your home and showing them kindness was a sign of friendship, intimacy, and support for whatever that person stood for. So Jesus equated the welcome of his representatives with acceptance of their message. He's saying the same thing in Matthew 25. If you really believe my gospel, how can you not be moved by the suffering of those who are suffering because of their commitment to my message? 
He is not saying that we will be saved by our giving to the poor. He is saying that there is no way we could be saved if we are not kind to the poor. And he's saying that if we're really saved, we will show that by our kindness and generosity to others, particularly those who represent Jesus himself. Hear this. The sign of genuine saving faith is a passionate commitment to the people of God and a passionate commitment to the mission of God. You see, there are two ways for us to tell what you believe. One is what your mouth says, the other is what your life says, and one of those is way more reliable than the other one. And if what your life says is different than what your mouth says about what you believe, God accepts the testimony of your life every single time. So the question is not, what does your mouth say you believe about Jesus? The question is, what does your calendar and your bank account and your daily habits, what does that say about your belief in the Lordship of Jesus and the generosity of Christ? Which leads me to number two. This question presents this question. Is it possible to be a lukewarm Christian? Is it possible to be a lukewarm Christian? Now, if you're not familiar with church lingo, lukewarm Christian, that's a concept that comes from Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus is talking about a church where he says, listen, you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm, and I just want to spit you out of my mouth. It's like, I mean, hot coffee is awesome. Cold brew in the afternoon is awesome. Room temperature coffee, you just want to spit it out of your mouth. And Jesus is saying something similar. He's like, I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold, but this kind of lukewarm, half in, half out, sort of committed, not committed, it just makes me nauseous. Lukewarm Christians are Christians who sit in churches, believe the message, but are not really sold out to Jesus and not meaningfully engaged in his mission. It is these kinds of Christians that Jesus is describing in these three parables. The maidens consider themselves friends of the bridegroom, but they don't live in a way anticipating his return. All they're thinking about is how to be comfortable for the evening, not how to be faithful in their assignment to the bridegroom. The wicked servant considers himself in the employ of the master, but he has never offered his talents without reserve for use in the kingdom. Lukewarm Christians are Christians who sit in churches and come on a regular basis, but are just not sold out to the mission. Let me tell you what bothered me this week as I read these parables. There's no middle ground. There's no third category. There's either sheep or goats. There's no shoats or however you would combine them, Right? They're sheep or goats. You're either, you're either committed to the mission, using your resources for the kingdom, all in for Jesus, or you're not. Either a sheep or a goat. And see, that puts lukewarm Christians in a very precarious position. I've told you before that one of the things in these parables that has always gripped me is how when the master in the second parable comes back and rewards the first two servants for their investment in the kingdom, the third servant, who remember buried his talent, just buried his money and he just gave it back to the master. The master refers to him as wicked. And the question I ask is, well, what wicked thing had he done? Right? Well, there's no immorality in there. He, he didn't take the money and blow it on prostitutes or gambling or embezzle it or anything like that. He, he gave it back. He gave back 100% of everything that had been given to him. And Jesus calls him wicked. What wicked thing had he done? And here's my conclusion, I've told you. There's more than one way to be wicked in the kingdom of God. You can be wicked through an egregious violation of the Ten Commandments. Yep, you can go out and be immoral and that would classify you as wicked, but you can also be wicked by simply failing to leverage and invest what God has given you for his kingdom for the purposes for which he gave it to you. The first, the first breaking the 10 commandments, we would call that becoming wicked by the sins of commission. The second one, not leveraging your life and using it for the kingdom would be becoming wicked by the sin of omission. 
We preach a lot here about the first, about not breaking the commandments, but what about the latter? Let me ask you, have you ever offered your life, your talents, your time, your talents, and your treasure without reservation as a blank check to God? For those of you who are in high school, middle school, college, have you ever said to God, I'm glad you're trying to be a good Christian. I'm glad you're here learning the Bible. I'm glad you're trying to be a good person at school. But have you ever said, God, every second of my life from this point on, all my talents, all my treasures, all my time is a blank check to you. You show me where you want to use it and how because my life belongs to you. Not just that age, at any age. Whatever stage you're in in your career, have you said to God, God, why did you give me this career and how is it supposed to be used for your kingdom? We just had a big group of senior adults um, gather the other night. One of the things we've uh, learned is Forbes magazine says that um, the average senior adult now lives 20 plus years after their retirement. Our question is, have you offered those 20 years to God and said, God, how do you, how do you want me to use these next two decades? It's probably not going to be just to coast out into eternity. There's probably something God wants you to do for his kingdom. I don't know what the answer is, but have you offered it to him as a blank check? One of the things we're challenging our senior adults here is same thing we tell our college students. Why not take the first two years after you retire and spend it with one of our church plants? There are church planters that would love to have your wisdom and your consistency as a part of that. Why not tithe your retirement to God? All right, if we looked at your giving, all of you, if we looked at your giving, would we say that your giving represents somebody who is all in with the mission of God? Are you a lukewarm Christian? Francis Chan that I referenced earlier in his book, Crazy Love, has a chapter where he describes the profile of a lukewarm Christian, which you could, you know, I think you could see straight from these parables. You could say that everything he got comes straight from these parables. All the people that he describes are regular in their church attendance, and all of them are pretty accurate in what they believe about the Bible and the gospel. Here's how he describes them. Lukewarm people, first of all, don't really want to be saved from their sin. They just want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. You know the difference? In other words, Jesus is useful for keeping them out of hell, but they're not really interested in loving Jesus and eradicating sin from their hearts, sins that nobody can see. Jesus is useful to them as a way of avoiding hell, but he's not beautiful to them as somebody that they worship. Lukewarm, lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ. Right? You love to hear them in church, love to hear these stories of missionaries, and you love to applaud people who are sacrificing for the kingdom, yet they do not do radical things themselves. In fact, lukewarm people kind of call radical what Jesus calls normal. What Jesus expects of all of his followers, lukewarm people say, wow, that's crazy, radical, you're just all sold out. Lukewarm people equate their partially sanitized lives with holiness, but they could not be more wrong because Jesus did not call us to sanitation. He called us to discipleship. To be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that you live a sanitized life. In fact, it means you get your hands dirty by bringing healing and salvation to people just like he did. So it's like a friend of mine says, in the church today, we tend to disinfect people rather than disciple them. We define holiness by what Christians avoid rather than being like Jesus. I mean, holiness, isn't that what holiness is, is being like Jesus? Jesus' life was not defined by what he avoided. Jesus' life was defined by what he entered into. Had Jesus merely avoided sin, none of us would be saved. We're saved because Jesus not only avoided sin, he entered into suffering. And if you're a follower of his, your life is not going to be defined by just avoiding sin. It's also going to be defined by entering into suffering just like he did. Hear about this one. Lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, their coworkers, or their friends. They want to. 
Oh, they think it's a good idea. They love it when other people do. But when it actually comes down to the moment where they would share their faith, it's just too awkward. And see, the bottom line is they care more about their comfortability. They care more about avoiding awkwardness with their neighbors than they do their eternal, the eternal soul of their neighbor. And so they just prefer to sit back and hope somebody else does it because they're lukewarm. Lukewarm people think about life on earth like these maidens did much more often than eternity in heaven. Lukewarm people love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in a truly sacrificial way. They love the concept of giving. They love when other people do, but when it comes down to actually giving in a way that would maybe threaten some of these luxuries that they have worked so hard to obtain, they're not going there. Lukewarm people don't live by faith. Their lives are structured so that they never have to. I mean, you can see that from this parable of the, of, of the talents, right? There's always risk that it's involved in the kingdom. There's always kind of a blank check that says, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but here it is. If you are not in a place where you feel desperate for the spirit of God, there is no way that you're on the front lines of the mission. When you're on the front lines, you feel desperately your need for God's help. Let me give you one more here. Lukewarm people give God the leftovers. And by the way, sometimes they're really big leftovers because you're really wealthy. Sometimes they're really impressive and they get you on list of top donors to organizations and churches. But at the end of the day, they're the leftovers and they're not your first and your best. The prophet Malachi talked, for example, about a bunch of priests who gave to God, but they kept for themselves the best spotless animals and passed on to God the less desirable animals. And they assumed, they assumed that God was pleased because, you know, at least they'd sacrifice something. Their name was on the donor list, yet God described them and their practice, Malachi 1.8, as evil. Not just inadequate, but evil. If your giving does not represent your first and your best, it is evil to God. So what I'm trying to tell you, and I'm not trying to be a jerk about this, I'm just trying to tell you when the offering plate goes by, keep your lunch money. Don't throw your lunch money in there to make yourself feel better. God deserves your first and your best. And if you're not going to give your first and your best, then God doesn't want it at all. And stop calling it like too many bills or forgetfulness or I got a busy schedule. Call it what it is. It's evil. That's what Jesus is talking about here with the lukewarm Christian. Now, listen, I don't want to give you the wrong idea. And I, I know that I already have with some of you. Look, we all struggle, all of us, including especially your pastor, struggles with seasons where we're lukewarm. And it's difficult to strive to maintain commitments, seasons where we falter. All of us are, 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 are like that. But the fundamental question, listen, here's the fundamental question is this. When you became a Christian, did it include for you a surrender to get engaged in the mission of God? That's the question I'm asking. I'm not asking do you falter and do you go through seasons where sometimes you're this and sometimes you fall back a little bit. I'm saying when you became a Christian, did it include for you a blank check surrender to get engaged in the mission of God? Or was your Christianity more of a belief thing, a go to church thing, a have Jesus save me from hell thing, a basic morality and avoid the big sins thing? Or have you personally gotten engaged in the mission of God and offered your time, your talent, and your treasures as a blank check to God at whatever age you are? If not, you are not a follower of Jesus. And by the way, don't don't sit there and hide behind that. Well, I just don't know really what I'm called to. People use that with me all the time as a way of just excusing, not getting involved and avoiding action. Here's what I usually ask them back. I'm like, okay, um, did you hear God calling you to watch TV yesterday? 
No, but you did it, right? Did you hear God last year call you and your family to go on a vacation? Did you come into your family and say, you know what, I've been praying about this, and I feel like God's called us to go on a vacation? Did you, you, know, did you, did you, did you feel God calling you to get up and go work out? No, you did it because you know it's good for you, right? I'm pointing that is not to say that vacations or exercise or even watching TV is wrong, just that we're so quick to rationalize our entertainment and other priorities, yet we are slow to commit to serving God. So stop using that as an excuse, right? In fact, you're like, well, I can't figure out what I'm called to. Try about 10 different things and let God call you out of one of them. Don't write this off by saying, well, I can't afford it, right? I'm just not that wealthy. Do you realize that if you make average household income, $4,000 a month, $48,000 a year. If you make that in your household, you automatically make a hundred times more, a hundred times more than the average person on this planet. I mean, honestly, y'all, what's more messed up? What's more messed up? That we have so much compared to everybody else or that we still don't think we're rich? That we can make a hundred times more than everybody else and say, yep, I'm poor, I'm broke, I ain't got nothing. We are neither of those things. We are rich. All of us are filthy rich. How can we have so much but be doing so relatively little to relieve suffering and still call ourselves followers of Jesus? You know, sometimes we marvel. We look backwards 200 years. And we marvel at people who seemingly said they believe the word of God, said they believe the gospel, yet they own slaves. And we kind of shake our heads at them and say, well, how could you... How could you say you believe the gospel? How could you say you believe the Bible and, and own slaves? I wonder if 200 years from now, they're going to look back at us and say, how could they claim to believe the gospel? How could they say they follow Jesus and have so much stuff and have done such little with it and relieving suffering and seeing the gospel preached to people around the world? This is deadly serious. We talk a lot about the rest of the world going to hell. You see, maybe some of us should ask if we are. There's an old Scottish pastor by the name of Robert Murray McShane who told his congregation concerning this passage. I'm concerned for the poor, but more for you. I don't know what Christ's going to say to you in the great day. I feel that there are many hearing me who may know well that they're not Christians. They do not love to give to give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. Oh, my friends, if that's you, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. The sign of genuine saving faith is a passionate commitment to the people of God and the mission of God there are two ways for us to tell what you believe. One is what your mouth says, the other is what your life says. And one of those is way more reliable than the other one. And if what your mouth says you believe is different than what your life says you believe, God accepts the testimony of your life every single time. The question is, what does your life and your checkbook and your calendar and your daily schedule, what does that say about your belief in the Lordship of Christ and your belief in the mercy of the gospel? So let's ask our third question. Who might be the least of these, my brothers, who we should be serving today? Who might be the least of these, my brothers, who we should be serving today? Well, let's start with the obvious one, the most obvious application or persecuted believers around the world. Now, I'd say we live mostly isolated from this in the United States, not entirely. We face it in our own different ways. But in 2017, 3,066 Christians were killed specifically because of their faith. And just as many were abducted or raped for that same reason. 
793 churches last year were attacked and burned, including some in Indonesia this very week. They say that 2017 was, by the numbers, the worst year for persecution in Christian history. We work with a group here at this church called Open Doors, which is a mission group that is on the ground in more than 60 of the countries in the world that are the most dangerous for Christians. Every time you give to our church, in part, you're helping to support them, right? But for some of you, it needs to go beyond that. For some of you, you ought to get personally involved with a mission group like that one, and it's your way of fulfilling Matthew 25. Let me give you a second category here of of people he might have been talking about today. Poor believers around the world. Many believers in places around the world live on basic subsistence. There are about 500 million Christians, many of whom are children, that live on less than $2 a day, which is why we at this church partner with a group called Compassion. Compassion is the best ministry that we found. I'm sure there are others, but it's one of the best that we found that connects you to impoverished children. It's not just charity, like an NGO where you come in and drop off a bag of rice and zoom off somewhere else. It is committed to raising up leaders so that they can raise up the level of their community in a holistic way. It will only work through local leaders. They work through local churches. And if there's not a church in the area, they'll work to see one planted. And then they'll use that church to start a program for children that will help meet their medical needs, um, education needs, and give them spiritual training to come and follow Jesus. Um, We're very committed to it at this church. Uh, Just to show you, by the way, the product of it is we have a guy right now who is considering the residency um, here, the church planting residency at the Summit Church, who grew up as an orphan in the compassion um, stuff down in in the Dominican Republic that we are partnered with. Um, So that's the kind of product that they point out. My family, we have four children that we sponsor, one for each of my kids, um, that we we sponsor them monthly. Um, My kids write them letters. We're involved in their lives. We've taken two mission trips, and we're planning, Lord willing, a third um, coming up. And that is a way that we're involved, and it's a way that you can be involved. I'll tell you more about that at the end of our time together. And by the way, for some of you, your action step in this could be just to go on a mission trip with us. We don't have you go on a mission trip so that you can be vacationaries and, you know, see exotic places around the world. We want you to see firsthand what God is doing in some of these places. And so you could sign up to go on a mission trip with us next year. We want a thousand people from this church to join us on a mission trip. Let me give you another category here. Neglect, neglected believers in our own community is a way we could, we could fulfill this. We could start with, with the ones that James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, widows and orphans. Or how about this, older senior citizens who are in rest homes, who are believers and never have somebody come by and just tell them, hey man, we love you. We want to take care of you and we don't want you to be lonely. Foster kids in our community. By the way, I heard the greatest story. Um, You know, we, our church, we've gotten very committed to the foster uh, system here. And we have, uh, I mean, multiple families um, uh, that are engaged in it. We had a family, our KJ, one of our pastors told me this, uh, we had a family that um, wanted to become a foster family. You know, to do that, you got to get a lot of training, certification, a lot of testing. And so they um, were being interviewed by, it was a medical doctor, and they were sitting out with the doctor, and the doctor said, okay, so why do you want to become foster parents? And the dad said, well, um, we believe God rescued us when we were orphans, so it just seems appropriate that we would take our time and our talents and our treasures and use that to rescue others. Doctor looks at him, puts down the pen and says, do you go to the Summit Church? (laughs) And the wife said, well, why why do you ask that? He said, because I can't tell you how many times I've heard that very thing. And there are always people that are go to the Summit Church who say that. He said, I'll tell you something else. We can track here in Durham County, the foster care services. We can track the date your church decided to get involved because you've made the biggest difference of anything that has happened in the foster care system over the last thing of when you got involved. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about you loving people in Jesus' name. 
That's why we do a thing called Serve RDU, which is a week-long mission trip we take to our city. Uh, This year, it'll be August the 12th through the 18th. Go ahead and mark your calendar. You ought to take at least a day off and get involved in one of these things. We don't do that, by the way, to try to give you a quick and easy, you know, thing that you can go out and then feel good about yourself because you did it once a year and run back to your car and parallel your hands and and, uh, go back to your sanitized life for another year. Um, We do that as a way of just acquainting you with what's going on in our city so that you can be up front and see that so that you can, many of you, Lord willing, get engaged on a local way and year round in in a very committed way. Um, give you another category here. In light of our discussion the other day here at this church, I would mention that one of the ways that we specifically in the majority community can heed Jesus' instructions in Matthew 25 of, of, of loving the, the, the least of these, my brothers and sisters, is being committed to justice for anybody in our community who is not treated equally under the law or who doesn't have access to the same opportunities and privileges that we do. I mean, part of what it means to love brothers and sisters of Jesus everywhere is that we are committed not just to justice for us and our kids, but we're committed to justice for anybody everywhere, even if it doesn't affect us. Um, Two more categories real quick here. Refugees and immigrants. Listen, listen, I understand, I understand that our government has some really difficult questions when it comes to the best refugee settlement programs and the right immigration policy. I get that. And I get that there's a lot of complexity in that. And personally, I'm praying for our leaders in that. And I'm glad it's their decision, not mine. But see, I've got a different set of questions when it comes to being a pastor and a follower of Jesus. And what that means is that when somebody shows up in my community, regardless of the legality of how they got there, I know what my responsibility is, and it is to love them like Jesus has loved me. I can pray for my leaders. And we can even have engaging discussions about what the right best policies are that balance security and fairness and general. We can can talk about all that, but I know that as a follower of Jesus, when somebody is in front of me, especially, Jesus says, if they are claiming to be believers, which many of them are, I know my responsibility is to love them as I would want to be loved or want one of my children to be loved. Let me add in one final category here, and that is future brethren of Jesus. I can't help but read Matthew 25 through kind of a future lens of Jesus talking about people that had not yet come to believe on him. And he was saying, when you reached out to them, when you reached out to this person who had become one of my children, I took that as being done to me. If we believe the gospel, how can we not be actively and sacrificially engaged as a church in carrying the gospel to the nations? Not too long ago, a study I was reading showed that, listen to this, the average American congregation spent no more than 7% of its annual budget on anything apart from ministry within its four walls. 93% got spent on ministry within the four walls. Only 7% went outside. Of that 7%, less than half ever left the United States. Of that half that left the United States, only one-third, now we're talking with 1%, ever went to meeting people's physical needs. In other words, listen, roughly one penny of every dollar of American Christian giving to the local church, only one penny of every dollar directly implements Jesus' vision in this parable across national boundaries. Now, I'll tell you, some of church last year, Last year, 19% of what we took in was dedicated to getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we want that to be a lot more. But it's, it's why we are so focused on missions giving. It doesn't benefit us. It's not a direct. It's that we know that we've got to fulfill what Jesus says here in Matthew 25. It's one of the reasons, by the way, I am getting involved more in the Southern Baptist Convention. 
because that's who we give a lot of our money through and we wanna see a leaner, more efficient structure in getting the people to the nations, right? I mean, if we've got people that are dangling on the end of the rope in some of these countries, then doesn't it mean we gotta do what we need to do on our side to make sure that we've got the best structure to support them and send them? I mean, I always think of William Carey, who was the uh, British missionary who went to India, the father of the modern missions movement. As he was leaving, he told this congregation in Great Britain, he said, I'll go dangle on the other end of that rope in India, but you've got a promise to hold securely on the other side. For those of us that God has called to stay here, which I'm in that category now, for those of us that God has called to stay here, I've got a commitment to the people that are carrying out Matthew 25. I've got to hold the rope, which means I give and I pray and I take trips to go support and just lift up their hands and say, how can I serve you? How can I bless you? We have a role in fulfilling Matthew 25. Now, I'm going to end this by giving you a very practical action step. But before I get that, I want to make sure you consider the most important thing that we've said today. And the question is this, what category are you going to be in? This scene in Matthew 25 is coming. Are you going to be a sheep or a goat? There's two ways for us to tell what you actually believe. Don't hide behind your mouth. Does your life demonstrate that you believe in the Lordship of Christ and the generosity of the gospel? Your friends that you hang out with, could they stand up here and give a credible testimony as to your love of the gospel and your belief in the Lordship of Jesus. Because if your best friends that you hang out with at school day by day couldn't tell us about your testimony for Jesus, it's because you don't have one. If your mom, how about that? If your mom couldn't give us credible evidence of you being born again, it's because you're not. Because it is your life that demonstrates the truthfulness of what you believe. I'm not trying to send you into despair. I'm trying to say that some of you need to wake up God it never calls us to perfection. He never says live perfectly, but there's got to be a sense in which Jesus, I'm just not using you as a fire escape from hell. I'm offering you my life. I stumble and I fall every single day and I'm not a great example of a Christian, so don't look at me. But I know, I know that I have committed and I've offered my life as a blank check to God and he answered it by telling me to be a pastor. He probably not going to tell you that, but he's going to have something for you. And I just want you to say, Jesus, here I am. You, show me time, talent, and treasures, how to use them for the mission of God. Have you done that? If not, I want to give you a chance to make that right right now. Before I give you this practical step, I want you to make this right right now. So every head bowed, every eye closed at the Summit Church, all 11 campuses, bow your heads, close your eyes right now. If I just described you, you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you've never offered him your life as a blank check. Would you do that right now, right now? Lord Jesus, all that I have, all that I am, all that I ever hope to be, offers a blank check to you. Show me what you want to do with it. Maybe some of you know you are Christians, but you're just convicted as I go through this lukewarm Christian stuff that you're like, man, I just fall back into that. God, help me to be all in, sold out. Lord Jesus, I know you're my Savior, but I want to I want to be fervent. I don't want to be lukewarm. I want to be on fire for you. Father, I pray. I know that a line in the sand is being drawn for many people right here, right now. And things will never be the same. I thank you, God, for bringing them here. I thank you for opening their hearts. And I thank you for this warning, this gracious warning in Matthew 25. In Jesus' name, amen. And look up here, all campuses. I told you that I got a very practical thing for you. You got this when you came in. It should have been sitting on your seat. You might be sitting on it right now. Take it out. 
I told you about compassion. This is how you can get engaged in compassion. Hear me, it's not for all of you. And I'm not gonna try to make you say, if you're not doing this, you're not a real Christian. I'm not saying that. I'm saying for some of you, this is going to be a, a really good tangible action step to put into practice what I just said, okay? Um, this is a way that you will get connected to a specific child and you will sponsor them. It's $38 a month. By the way, none of that church even touches our church. None of that money even touches our church. It goes straight to compassion. There's nothing in, our, in this for our church. It's just a way that we know we can live out Matthew 25. It'll connect you to a child. Um, compassion will contact you. They'll show you how to officially get signed up. They'll show you how to do the payment stuff and all that. Like I said, my family has four of them, Edouard, Grismali, Alexandria. Um, They're all in the Dominican Republic. And uh, our family's taking two trips and we plan on taking a third. It's just an incredible, incredible way uh, to get engaged. And it not just changes them, it changes you. It's changed us. It's given our kids a vision of just what God is doing around the world. There are 1,250 families at the Summit Church that are engaged in this, 1,250. We are praying that by the end of this year, the number will be 2,000 which means if you're not good at math, 750 of you, okay? 750 of you out of 10,000 this weekend that'll say, yeah, this is me and, and I'm gonna pray about it. You're like, well, I'm praying about it. I need to pray about it. Just go ahead and fill it out. Hear me. And then when Compassion contacts you, if you're like, I prayed about it, this is not for me right now, then at that point, you, they'll, you know, that'll be fine. But this is the first step. Um, I know some of you are skeptical. You're cynical by nature. That's me too. So let me show you what I would wanna hear right now. I would wanna hear about a family at the Summit Church who got involved in this and they saw a difference, not just in the life of the person they invested in, but in their life as well. So uh, check out this story. My, my sponsor. What's she, sponsor. It says right here, it says. In the future, she would love to meet us. How cool would that be to go to Dominican Republic? Would you like to go to Dominican Republic and meet her? So I think it was on a Compassion Sunday. We were at church and they talked about compassion and we walked out and we were like, this would be good for us. And I think we signed up right on the spot. Mm -hmm. We decided to pick someone who was uh, about the same age as Miller. Mm -hmm. And that's when we first met Peter. Mm -hmm. And then as our, our family grew, we decided that we would like to have another sponsor, sponsor another that's child. Right. It was like Christmas of 2015 where we decided that we would wrap a gift and put it underneath a tree and it would be a compassion child. Right, and that was when Charlotte got to open it she was really excited because it was a little girl this time. Yeah. And I think that that night she went and told all her family, like, I got a compassion kid too that I get to write letters to. They're now aware that the world is really big and that there's people all over the world who need to know Jesus. And it's made our kids curious. And it's yeah. made them think about the fact that the world's much bigger than where they live and where they go to school and their neighborhood. And that's so important for us because long-term, we want them thinking about the world right. and how they can reach it. Yeah, so when we pray for them, we say, Peter is praying to the same God that we are praying to in North Carolina. Same with Erie. And so I feel like that's been impactful for them to understand that. Right. You know? I think it's been so relatable too because there'll be times where like we'll be reading uh, one of the stories in the storybook Bible. We'll be trying to translate that to real life and talk about how we hope that, you know, other kids, neighbors, and friends, or Peter and Yuri will have heard this story. And I think it's our kids who will hop in and say, oh, we should tell them about this. And, and it's like kind of ignited a little thought in their mind that they should be sharing this good news um, with Peter and Yuri. 
because I feel like in every letter we send them, we always talk about Jesus and we always say we want you to know him, we're praying for you to, to truly know them, and they say the same thing back to us, you know, so. It's just part of how they think now, right, which has right. been so neat to see um, them thinking with a missions focus so early. Right. And I think it's encouraged them to share their faith with their friends at school and with other people. It's, it's more on their mind now because they've, you know, been able to do it with Peter and Mary. You know, our hope is that that continues when they're adults right. and they're loving their neighbors and their coworkers and their kids and teaching them. And so then there's this generational impact that could happen. Totally.